0: Chapter 19 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 A Desert Ride, Yuma to Blythe. It was with a light hearted feeling that I left Yuma. For one thing, cooler weather was at hand. People had told me that the middle of September would bring a break in the heat and this was the eighth of the month. The previous night, for the first time for months, except when at Warner's in the mountains, I had found it comfortable to sleep under a thin blanket. For another, in leaving Yuma, I was turning northward and in a general way homeward. Three months of travel in this desert country, nearly all of it alone, and with everlasting anxieties of water and forage, had brought a feeling that sometimes bordered on disgust whether it was these considerations or some real difference in the air, somehow I felt as if autumn had come. I tried in vain to get at the source of the feeling. It might have been a bird sitting meditatively on a stalk of milo maize, or a cow dreamily chewing, or a flock of blackbirds making jolly chorus in a willow. Anyhow, it was there, and even when birds and cows were left behind and the desert again engulfed us, i felt the vague relief i chose the california bank of the river there is a fairly good road i am told leading north on the arizona side while on the west side roads were problematical beyond picacho some twenty miles up but i find untravelled ways most to my liking and felt pretty sure i could get through for water would be at hand if i kept near the river and i heard of a ranch or two where forage might be found before i should reach the settlements of the palo verde valley the first few miles led through the indian reservation and at one or two of the khans houses the family was already breakfasting mainly it seemed on watermelon, under the ramada or brush-roofed shed which is the general living-room during the hot months the winter quarters of most of the houses seemed snug enough with good doors and windows though these looked odd in walls of willow-poles caulked with mud one young fellow dashed past me on a bicycle with a shock of hair streaming behind him that for length if not for texture might be the envy of many a pale-faced brunette passing the last irrigation ditch we entered at once on a wide mesa with the ragged red hills of the chocolate range on all sides except where, beyond the river, the mountains of Arizona were piled in solid masses of purple or aerial tones of blue. Ahead rose the Picacho pinnacle, like a dark pillar of thundercloud. It would be strange if the mines on the north flank of the mountain had escaped discovery. Any prospector or explorer coming within sight of that curious peak would be bound to go and see what it meant." i saw here an unusually good mirage a sheet of pale blue water with slender towers like the minarets of mosques artistically grouped beyond i used to wonder whether kaweah saw these illusions i cannot see why a horse should not his eyes being much at the same level as a man's but he never gave any token of noticing them are animals quicker than we to detect the unreality He had drunk little at starting and refused water at the ditch, but by early afternoon he was jaded. I searched each gully in hope of finding water left by the storm of a few days before, and by good luck came upon a tinaha of clear water. By lying down I could just make the canvas bucket reach it by using the forty-foot picket rope. It was delicious water, cool and sweet, and we resolved on lunch a chuckwalla that lived in a cranny of the gully amused me with reptilian antics while i ate no doubt he thought my actions equally uncouth the country became rougher with antediluvian looking hills coming in at every fresh view ocotillos were almost the only growth and these as brilliant as if dipped in vivid paint made a striking show against the crude red of the rock By late afternoon we rounded the flank of the Picacho, reaching the divide just before sunset. I shall never forget the sea of color that spread before me here. But why attempt to describe that which I felt it was hopeless to try to realize myself? It was superhuman. Words were below the trivial, even thoughts would hardly come. In mere geography it was the back of the chocolates that I saw a red ocean of ridges and pinnacles that if one could count them would run to hundreds or more likely thousands the level sun threw every detail into strongest relief each point sharp and tense as if in action across this swept the splendour of an unearthly sunset the road here swung to the north of picacho which had become a huge perpendicular cliff mysterious in shadow Nearby was another peak, scarcely less original in outline. A mile brought us to the old mining camp, a cluster of huts and sheds, all but one or two of them dismantled, with a larger central building occupied now by a caretaker. The property is involved in some legal difficulties and has long been unworked. This district has been noted for its rich placers since the early 60s, and it is said that when it was at its best, in bonanza as the phrase goes any miner who failed to take out three hundred dollars per day was discharged as incompetent instead of the several hundred men who at one time made this a lively camp i found only two or three mexicans making a small living by working over the old placer ground with dry washers i persuaded the caretaker to spare cawea an armful of hay from his tiny store and ate a cold supper rather than spend time over cooking while that wonderful afterglow filled the sky. The porch of a disused building where I spread my blanket proved to be a battlefield of the rats of Picacho and the camp cat who charged across me from time to time. We took our way in the morning down a picturesque canyon along which a light railroad used to run between the river and the mines. Rusty rails and machinery were strewn about adding their quota of raggedness to piles of broken rock and old railway ties. The colors of the walls were extraordinary, splashed about in a way that suggested the upsetting of cauldrons of molten rock, pink, lavender, scarlet, green, and blue. The cool gray of the smoke trees made an excellent foil for these lively effects. On the river bank at the mouth of the canyon were the remains of the old town of Picacho, its population reduced to two or three families. This region, for many miles up the river, is a land of yesterday, of mines worked out, towns and settlements dead or dying. Yet it may revive, for mineral country can never be safely said to be dead. Any day the grizzled old man with pick and shovel, frying pan, and gold pan may strike a blow that will bring it to life literally as if by magic. Looking at that extent of mountains, all known or guessed to be mineralized, but in great part unprospected, one feels that bonanzas by scores might be hidden there. The store where I had counted on replenishing my saddlebags was closed, this not being one of the bi-weekly mail days, but at the adjoining house I found a kindly Mexican family and experienced again the courtesy of these often underrated people while i drank my milk and talked with the dueño on the veranda where the family life went on the phonograph was turned on for my pleasure it was odd to hear the strains of palaiachi by these lonely reaches of the colorado tipperary did not sound so improbable i now turned northward along the river The one difficulty I expected in making my way along the stream was the overflowed areas likely to be left by the yearly flooding which results from the melting of the snows on the headwaters. But fortunately this summer the rise had been less than normal and there should be little trouble, though I must expect detours and retracing of steps a hardly discernible track ran alternately along the river margin and the gravelly mesa that stretched from the bank to the belt of rugged hills this gave variety to the march sometimes through the thickets of willow again an open blaze of sun while at intervals a ravine came down from the mountains filled with ironwoods palaverdes smoke-trees and the tedious but useful mesquite at a little cove where firm ground allowed of cawea getting a drink I stopped for lunch in a congratulatory pipe, feeling not a little satisfaction in at last traveling along this famous stream, which had for years attracted my imagination. The Colorado is not, in its lower course, a particularly striking river. That kind of feature it has in full measure farther up, where with roar of rapids or nobler quietude of motion, it sweeps through the vast chasms of the Grand Canyon here it was a wide red flood majestic in its expression of power but with monotony for its prevailing note this monotony however as i soon found comes to be itself a feature of impressiveness the union of silence with motion has also its peculiar charm and the colorado might well be named the silent river its lack of sound might pass without notice if it were not brought to the attention by sudden swirls or whirlpools that now and again break the stillness with a rush of rapid water followed again by the death-like hush these periodical suctions are characteristic of the stream and are caused by the continual shifting of the material of the bed A phenomenal quantity of silt is carried by the Colorado, and its deposition results in constant changes of the bottom, a newly formed shoal at one place being balanced by a displacement at another. On the shores, also, every flood rebuilds and tears down the banks, which even at this time of low water, I often noted to be rapidly caving at some point where I might be standing. This again causes changes in current in the channel with the result of fresh alterations of the bed. The river has had various names in the course of its history. We first hear of it in 1538 under the name Rio de las Balsas, River of Rafts, from the Franciscans, Fray Juan de la Asunción and Fray Pedro Nadal, who saw the Yumas cross the stream on rafts. Two years later, one of Coronado's officers, Hernando de Alarson, the first to discover its mouth and explore some distance above, named it the Rio de Buena Guilla, or River of Good Guidance. In the same year, Melchior Díaz called it Rio de Tuzón, River of the Firebrand, because he found the savages carrying torches for warmth. Juan de Oñate, in 1605, christened it the Rio Grande de Esperanza, River of Hope. But in 1700, it received from Padre Eusebio Quino the ominous name of the Rio de los Martires, prophetic of the massacre 80 years later at the infant missions near Yuma. But the name by which we know it, the Rio Colorado, the Red River, is emphatically its own, stamped upon it by nature. Red it is, both water and shores, approaching actual vermilion, and the hue is accented by the complementary green of the bordering vegetation. I should like to view it again in late fall, when cottonwood and willow had changed to that tint of autumn gold which gives such depth and brilliance to the blue of the sky. Footnote. In an old map, printed in Paris in the 16th century, and showing California as an island, the gulf is set down as Mar Bermejo, the Vermilion Sea, the name probably deriving from one of the reports and narrations from which the map was avowedly drawn traceable to some early explorer perhaps Alarson or ulloa one year earlier who may have observed the discoloration of the gulf water by that of the river near its mouth In footnote, i whiled away an hour with the shades of the old padres and conquistadores not forgetting the modern conqueror major john wesley powell whose exploration in 1869 has lately been commemorated in a monument built on a point above the wonderful canyon. All the afternoon we moved slowly along, flanked ever by barren red mountains, these in California, those in Arizona. Reach after reach of the river yielded little variety. Now and then a platoon of ducks flew up or downstream, or a heron or crane rose and flapped slowly off to a new fishing ground and often a covey of quail, caught unaware, scrambled with anxious chatter into the nearest thicket. A smokestack, like a steamer's funnel on the nearer bank, with nothing else of man's handiwork in sight, marked Hoag's Landing, where a ferry is supposed to ply, carrying an occasional passenger. I saw neither boat nor boatmen, and wondered to this hour how long one might wait there for passage. A mile or two farther on we came to a discouraged-looking house, and, after some search, a settler of similar mien who leaned on the rickety bars of a pasture that was occupied by a pair of burros. His niggardly words and a lackluster eye were not engaging, and when I learned that there was another settler six miles above, I forbore to suggest our remaining for the night, and we pursued our way. Before we reached the other place, sunset had come. It is surely by design of providence that the refreshing color flood comes over the earth just at the hour when otherwise man's spirit would tend to grovel. I reined up and gazed my fill over the solitary scene, now suddenly humanized by the magic of the evening light. The Colorado was no longer commonplace. Just above where a rocky island, known as Lighthouse Rock, stood midway in the stream, I found the ranch and a hearty welcome from the rancher. He had lived in this isolated spot for many years, usually quite alone, only at long intervals visited by some wandering prospector. To my inquiry, how often he got his mail, he replied, oh, every few weeks, in a tone implying that this was not half bad. My host had a small but substantial house with plenty of good land and many of the makings of a comfortable home on the river bank he had rigged up single-handed an engine and pump which were all but ready to lift the water upon his fields but the loneliness and the disheartening fight were too much for him and he declared that he must quit unless he could find a partner there are few people nowadays i fear who would be attracted by this frontier life where one's own resources must provide almost every item that enters into success and comfort if lumber is needed you row upstream, fell and hew your timbers and raft them down to your landing. If cement or nails, your supply is forty miles away. If flour or candles or coffee, they are only to be had at the trouble of a day's journey. Society one must dispense with, and if you need a doctor, but one had better not get sick. Even the luxury of a diet of wild burro, which is the only fresh meat available, might not be thought to offset the other deprivations. kawia met here an old acquaintance in the form of barley hay, which he munched with reminiscent air. After supper my host and I sat smoking and chatting for hours, while he unburdened himself of hopes and fears, relieved with yarns of cougar and bighorn, treacherous river and waterless trail, while coyotes yelped and yelled in cheerful rivalry, California versus Arizona. A long day's march was laid out for the next day. I bade good-bye early to the friendly hermit, and we took our way again northward. At each approach to the river, bands of waterfowl flew quacking and clattering across the shining water. The track was dim, and was cut away in places by the summer flood, causing us many detours. The thickets came more jungle-like and difficult, and often the axe came into play. There were vistas in these willow woodlands where one might have thought himself in a wintry forest, every twig and leaf being coated with white wool from the seed vessels. Where the sun lighted these glades, the resemblance to snow was exact, but the steamy heat and the mosquitoes forbade such delusion as to the time of year. There was more of interest when the trail took to the mesa. Then the mountains were in view, and forbidding as they were in their look of eternal drought and their uniformity of hue, their shapes were always stimulating. The mere geographical feeling, so to speak, that is excited by mountains is a luxury to anyone fond of geography. And these desert ranges, with their look of geologic austerity, have a quality that amounts to fascination, the fascination of repulsion, or something near that, a morbid and dangerous thing in general, but which somehow i find invigorating in a chain of blighted bewitched mountains one group of hills that i passed is named the barren mountains as if in contrast with the other ranges hereabouts but it is hard to imagine what the difference can be on the arizona side of the river about opposite to where i now was a few settlers have taken up land The locality is known as the Cibola Valley, taking the name from those seven cities that excited the old Spaniards so needlessly. I recognized a relic of the mining era in the form of some cement vats on the bench above the river. No shaft or tunnel could be seen, so probably the pay dirt was brought from a distance, this being the nearest water available for washing. In the bottom of one of the vats was a good-sized rattlesnake. I descended and did battle, Cahuilla looking down like an old Roman watching a combat in the arena. He shares my dislike for these creatures and gets as excited as I at the familiar rattle. As an instance of protective coloring, this specimen had taken on a dark red color that closely matched the ground. After a dozen miles or so, we came to a clearing where Mexicans had cultivated their little patches of maize, milpitas as they called them. THE WHITE SETTLER, WHO HAD LATELY OUSTED THEM, WAS LIVING IN THE -the STICK-IN-THE-MUD HOUSE. AS IT WAS NOON, I inquired OF THE WIFE WHETHER I MIGHT PURCHASE A MEAL AND TAKE IT WITH THEM, WHICH AFTER SOME DEMUR WAS GRANTED. THE MAN DID NOT LEAVE HIS RECLINING POSTURE ON A DIRTY QUILT IN THE SHADE OF A RAMADA DURING THE HOUR AND A HALF I STAYED, EXCEPT FOR A HURRIED VISIT TO THE TABLE TO GULP DOWN HIS BEANS AND COFFEE. WITH APOLOGIES TO THE KINDLY WOMAN, I COULD NOT HELP WISHING THAT THE DAMNED GREASERS, AS HE TURNED THE LATE OCCUPIERS, MIGHT HAVE BEEN MY HOSTS. ANGLO-SAXON SUPERIORITY HAS SOMETIMES TO BE TAKEN FOR GRANTED. A wide wash, THE Arroyo Seco, COMES IN HERE. THERE WAS NO SIGN OF RECENT RAIN HAVING FALLEN HEREABOUTS, but the wash, dry as it now was, showed signs that a flood had swept down from the chocolates within two or three weeks at most. I had seen this storm that I raced to Yuma ten days before, breaking over this locality, and now congratulated myself that it had not overtaken me in the open, for fresh drift was lodged four or five feet high all over the wide channel. To be caught in one of these arroyos, which are tempting camping places on account of firewood and shelter from wind, when a thunderstorm bursts on the mountains would be much like being under a reservoir when the dam breaks. Evening found us still far from Palo Verde, but a few hours cool traveling was not a bad prospect. Before the young moon had set, we had come into a well-marked road that comes up from Glamis, 40 miles to the southwest, and along this we marched comfortably, enjoying the grateful dusk. At length came fences, and then a light. We stumbled into a few sloughs that variegated the road, ran into a barbed wire fence or two, and pulled up at an adobe store building where a trio of teamsters were camping on the porch. Opposite was a corral and haystack, pleasing sights for Cahuilla. The proprietor was routed out, and we wound up a long day in very tolerable quarters. Morning revealed Palaverdi as a hamlet. I chose the smallest term, but it is too much, consisting of a store and a half a dozen scattered buildings, mostly old or of the modern kind that does not need years to make them disreputable. The population might number a score when all should have returned from inside. A backwater of the Colorado gives the place some attraction, and it appeared to be well stocked with fish and waterfowl not only the youth but the infants of palaverde find their pleasure in this lagoon a proud father pointed out to me his boy aged three who he assured me was an expert swimmer while his next younger a baby girl was in training and showing promise as for farming the district seemed not to have made a beginning a few untidy fields could be seen but not one instance of thrifty cultivation came to my notice this settlement lies at the southern end of the Palo Verde Valley, the upper part of which, as the next day's travel proved, tells a very different tale. No doubt the tide of prosperity, which means the flow of water in the irrigation canals, is on its way and will break on Palo Verde itself in due time. Through a pale, unpleasant land we took our way again northward. There was not now much comfort to be had from the mountains, for they were farther away and almost lost in summer haze, and the river had dropped out of sight. The vegetation was of the dismal kind usual on these silt levels, hummocks of atriplex varied with an occasional mesquite. The ground was cracked and gaping with heat, and the so-called ranches added the last touch of depression with their gunny-sacking and baling-wire makeshifts. Here and there, an attempt at cultivation had been made, but abandoned. The bitter dust rose listlessly from the road and hung about like an annoying companion. A team crept along, half-hidden in its own gray cloud. As we passed, I noticed that the load was burlap for baling the cotton crop of the northern end of the valley. A new, vacant store building, with one house adjoining, proved to be a town named Rennell's the law of supply and demand cannot be the simple thing many of us suppose for here was a man who thought apparently that a store automatically produces customers but the mind of the land boomer is one of the last puzzles that philosophy will solve meanwhile one shakes the head and passes by gradually the look of things improved the patches of cotton seemed less hopelessly starved and here and there a decent house appeared At a little homestead I noticed half a dozen thrifty young date-palms bearing a good crop. As I stood admiring, an old woman smoking a clay pipe came out of the shack and invited me to inspect her treasures at close range. Did I ever see such dates as them? No, she'd bet a half a dollar I never did. Them was real deglets and raised by hand. Laws, I wouldn't believe the water they took them six. And did I notice them offshoots, five of them? that would make near double the number when she set em out and in three or four years they'd double again and keep doing it till laws like no time she and her old man would have a date place folks had come from los angeles in their autos to look at and so on puffing and chatting away friendly garrulous admirably hopeful at the next settlement called neighbors really good farms began with cheerful horses and men big haystacks and a general air of something going on. The well-fenced fields showed excellent crops of alfalfa, cotton, and milo-maize. The difference between this locality and the one I had just left turns wholly on the question of water, the very blood of life, to desert soil. Teams became more numerous, then occasional buggies with women and children. Passing a prosperous-looking ranch, I caught the sound of a harmonium. Someone was playing home sweet home we were soon entering the town of Blythe, which i found to consist of a dozen good stores a neat little bank hotel moving picture theatre and so forth and a few score of modest dwellings but again i rebelled at the slovenliness that makes our new western city so deplorable one picks out the redeeming features eagerly enough every tasteful building every bit of lawn every decent job of fencing but these only give contrast to the general vileness one would think effort had been made real ingenuity called in to achieve this hideous result Blythe has no livery stable but i found makeshift quarters for kaweah at a corral surrounded by dirty tents and mud-and-pole hovels and put up for a day or two while i attended to matters of business the opening of a new pool-room was to be celebrated that night and the next WITH A DANCE GIVEN ON THE FIRST NIGHT BY THE MEXICANS, WHO ARE A STRONG ELEMENT IN THE TOWN, AND ON THE SECOND BY THE AMERICANS. AS I STOOD AT DUSK, TALKING WITH THE SADDLER AND WATCHING THE MEXICANS TROOPING TO THE BAILE AND CHATTERING FAMILY GROUPS, ALL OF FEMININITY AND SHOWIEST ARRAY, I NOTICED A FEW AMERICAN YOUTHS AND GIRLS PASSING IN WITH THEM, AND REMARKED THAT IT WAS GOOD TO SEE THE TWO ELEMENTS SO FRIENDLY. HUM, SAID MY COMPANION, Those store clerks would go anywhere there's a show for a dance. But, I said, don't the Mexicans invite them? Sure. And then, of course, the Mexicans are invited when you get up a dance. What? Invite the greasers? Well, I just reckon we don't. A map published in 1915 by some California concerns for the benefit of autoists shows the towns of Ehrenberg and La Paz on the Arizona side of the river, almost opposite Blythe. They were noted places in their time, and should be worth a visit, even in decline. I took the road eastward, at first among farms, and then through the jungle of the bottomland. A few autumnal lavender asters had already appeared, a hundredfold delightful after the long absence of such charmers on the way. Wild hemp, Cesbania microcarpa, was plentiful in places and still in blossom, but its spindling growth and formal leaves had made it tedious from first acquaintance. It would have been a pleasant woodland lane through the willows but for mosquitoes, which here were at their worst. kawia stopped once or twice and looked round at me with questioning eye, but I was no better off than he except for my smaller area. I tried tobacco, but this they seemed to find an interesting novelty— When I put Cahuilla to a gallop, I only got more bites in less time and barked my shins against the close-growing trees. The mosquitoes here were of the large, mottled kind that leave a mark like an old-fashioned legal wafer. A cable ferry plies at this point, which in the early days of the West was a main crossing place for California travel. In answer to my hail, a grizzled old fellow came out of a cabin on the farther side and, in the leisurely manner of ferrymen the world over, brought his boat across. This was a new experience for Cahuilla, and I expected him to balk when I rode him on board. But the Egyptians were behind, and the river, he knew, was our Red Sea of safety. When I asked the ferryman how he endured the mosquitoes, why, he replied, there's no more blood in me, you see. They got the last out of me about 1910, so they've quit coming around i found a road following the stream and turned northward over a clay mesa bearing the usual assortment of plants but with a few saguaros added to give the characteristic of arizona a mile or two along i found a house of the familiar stick-in-the-mud type where a young rancher had taken up an abandoned piece of bottomland he was no exception to the rule of friendliness and indeed urged me to stop with him more or less indefinitely the house had been built by Mojave Indians, whose tribal territory begins hereabout, and it still bore marks of their regime, such as Oyas and Matates, and on the walls crude drawings of trains, city buildings, and so forth. Probably some much traveled Mojave buck had been illustrating to his household circle the wondrous things he had seen on a visit to Needles, perchance even to Phoenix, the state capital. A few other houses of the same kind were passed, but all were deserted. In the rear of one, which appeared to have been a store, there were the remains of an arastra, the primitive contrivance for grinding ore by crushing it with rocks in a circular pit by means of a capstan operated by horse, burrow, or ox power. One is constantly meeting these reminders of the days of old, the days of gold, and all sorts of unlikely corners about the desert and comes to have the feeling of being in a region of the dead. The young rancher had warned me that La Paz was not now much of a place, but had told me how to find it. Five miles farther on I glimpsed his landmark, a cone-shaped cement monument visible from the road on the right. On making my way to it, I understood the point of his remark that I must be careful or I might miss the place. The monument, he told me, stood at the head of the principal street. I gazed all around. I was in a waste of mesquite scrub and arrowweed. Perhaps the houses were hidden by the brush. I searched for houses, then for any token showing where houses had stood. There was nothing, not so much as a scrap of foundation or adobe wall or of lumber or even debris. Apart from the monument and a few mud bricks close thereby, not a sign remained of the city of La Paz, which 40 or 50 years ago was a place of 5,000 or more people, the county seat, and hopeful of becoming the capital city of the territory. Someone has recently written about these defunct mining towns, which he calls the ghost cities of the West. La Paz is not even a ghost, merely a legend. The top of the monument had been knocked off and a hole broken in the side— I was told later that it marked the grave of the wife of an Italian citizen, saloon-keeper, merchant, and man of wealth of the old La Paz. He had lavished diamonds on his lady in her lifetime, and rumor said that the jewels had been buried with her. Some ghoul felt that he must put that to the proof, and did so with crowbar or dynamite. Whether they discovered diamonds or only proved that rumor had lied once more, I could not learn." East of town there is a spot once known as Friars or Friars Gulch, from which it is said millions were taken out. Fifteen square feet was allowed to each man, and fights to the death no doubt took place over these narrow boundaries. Ghosts there might well be about the old cemetery of La Paz if ghosts could find it, which is more than I could do. I climbed the bluff to see if from higher ground any indication of the former town could be traced the wider outlook did but emphasize the vacancy and desolation to which the ruined grave gave a touch of the definitely uncanny opposite across the silent river rose the brick-hued maria mountains with range behind range in paling distance beyond in all directions it was the same everything spoke of the dreary or savage and overall was an eternal note of weariness as of a land long since drained of life and left wan blasted and forsaken it was near sundown when we returned to the ferry hard by as the old town of Ehrenberg, whose founder one might fancy to have foretold by his lonely and tragic death the fate of the place that took his name here however there was at least a skeleton left a dozen or so adobe houses all but one or two wrecked and deserted gaping open to the sky in the largest habitable building ehrenberg's one and only citizen solemnly keeps store all by himself until a year or so ago two saloon keepers competed with him for the business of the place or rather of the rare passing traveler and the festal topers of Blythe, who were driven by county prohibition laws to cross the river for their harmless little loggers and cocktails then the incredible happened arizona itself went dry and the priests of the flowing bowl and dirty aprons sadly closed their temples and fared forth into a world suddenly become virtuous and unprofitable Ehrenburg is probably the only case extant of a town with but a single inhabitant almost certainly the only instances of such a place keeping a store going. We have read of that doubtful island where the people eked out a precarious livelihood by taking in one another's washing. Here, though, is an authentic case of a person making a living off himself. This I judge to be unique, and would suggest that some political economist go and interview him and find out how it is done. I would have done this myself, but at the moment I arrived he was just closing up town to go over to Blythe for the evening. Thus the twilight hour was my own to wander and muse. I wish I had the skill to do justice to this deserted village of the West. Bret Hart would have drawn it to the life. As I prowled, an owl flapped from the gate-post of the old corral, and a bevy of quail in the act of going to roost in the mesquites that had invaded the main street, Scurried back with a reproachful murmur into the arrowweed thicket by the river. One handsome date palm waved in melancholy grace over a little enclosure rank as weeds. The schoolhouse, to be known by a fragment of blackboard on the wall of its single room, is said to have housed the second school established in the old territory. The confessions of early passion which certain young felipes and Josefas. and marias were impelled to publish on the walls of their alma mater are still in evidence against them in days when flat-bottomed steamers came up from yuma with freight for the hustling frontier towns and mining camps of arizona ehrenberg was a port of size the rate for hauling goods from here to prescott is said to have been eight cents per pound or in the case of breakable or perishable stuff twenty-five cents per pound A small army of freighters and an imposing one of mules were continually on the road to and from the camps of the Harquahalas, the Walpi, and the Awafria. One man alone owned fifteen teams of eighteen mules to the team. Those were spacious days in the West when no smaller coin passed than the contemptible two-bits, do reales, a sum so mean that even the very term became a reproach and so remains even in these penurious times i found a number of ehrenberg's missing citizens up on the mesa a quarter mile out of town here in the most thoroughly dismal cemetery i ever beheld were some sixty or seventy graves mere shapeless piles of gravel and boulders with one more ambitious a yellow hump of adobe there was no sign of it ever having been fenced It lay open to coyotes, cattle, and burrows, whose tracks went in and out everywhere. I suppose shallow graves were dug, but it looks more as if bodies had been dropped unconfined on any vacant space, and stones and gravel thrown hastily upon them. Each grave was a burrow of ground squirrels. Few had any pretense of cross or mark of identification, and on still fewer could one make out a date or a name." the place seemed to put a stamp on the record of bygone Ehrenberg as a community unlovely in life, brutal in death. Yet, heaven forgive me for saying so, when many or most of these dreary mounds may mark the end of a life which, though cast in harsher setting, may have held more of usefulness, kindliness, and genuine worth than ours who gather easy impressions and write books or sell stocks or sugar and are marked in evergreen cemetery with tasteful marbles and non-committal texts. The Colorado looked poetic enough as I rode down to the ferry. I was not sorry when in answer to my call the ferryman shouted from his cabin door that he was a cooking supper right now, and I must wait. The sun had long set, but a carmine stain still lingered, merging into clear barrel-green and that shading to tender purple in which a half-moon stood vertical and the stars were taking station three cranes rose with sudden clatter and flew slowly downstream their shadows flickering on the calm water which swept past in a broad sheet of palest green streaked with crimson i was glad to have time for this to stamp itself upon my mind as my parting impression of the rio colorado The odors of bean-frying and biscuit-baking that came with our ferryman were well calculated to replace sentimentality with thoughts of supper. We crossed, I waved adieu to Arizona, and watched the boat slip mystically away into the gloom. A five-mile gallop through the moonlight and mosquitoes brought us again to Blythe, which had suddenly burst into bunting in readiness for Mexico's Independence Day on the morrow. End of Chapter Nineteen